So not only did he stop giving back what he was supposed to give back, he's like, you know what, I'm taking stuff back. I'm taking stuff back now that I previously returned to the Pope. The Pope is just sitting around reading the Bible, and he gets a, a little notification on his phone. He looks down, and it's just a Snapchat from Desiderius. It's like... <laughs> in, in one of the towns he was supposed to be controlling. Yeah, a selfie in the town. <laughs> Felt cute, might delete later. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People Morning Voice Edition. This is a podcast where we talk about dead people, and I have a morning voice. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, or whatever the hell it is, because I don't know, because I stayed up all night. How about Merry Christmas? Oh, Because <laughs> we're releasing right. this on Christmas. You're right. Uh, <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone, and to all a happy new year. Indeed. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested this Christmas season while we break down a member of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events of the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is way harder to do, but we always try anyway. So, George, what esoteric topic that nobody could you cares about? Um, what, well, what have you imposed on us today? Well... Aaron, I am a man of my word, and I said I was going to find something in my files with a Christmas connection, and in that noble goal, I have succeeded. In fact, uh, I have something that is not only basically a Christmas story, but it also fulfills a promise I previously made to the listeners about something I was going to do. That's right, you're all thinking it. If you liked Charles the Hammer, you are going to love his grandson, Charles the Great, Carl de Grossa, better known as Charlemagne. Hell yeah, but wait, isn't that like some obscure experimental metal opera album? In fact, it is, and not only that, but it is an obscure metal opera album with the oldest vocalist to ever feature on a metal album, and that vocalist just so happened to be Christopher freaking Lee. That's right, Saruman. Which is in a whole story on its own how that came into being, and so we're going to talk about that actually at the end of the show. Okay, I'm, look, I'm interested to see how you tie this in exactly, um, but I say hell yeah, let's do this. Before Voltaire made his famous remark about the Holy Roman Empire being neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, and before obnoxious teenagers who just discovered Reddit harassed people on Facebook with that obnoxious quote, one man built upon the legacy of his ancestors and forged a new kind of power. Nuclear power. So, George, if you hypothetically worked a podcast and you had to list your favorite thing about the founding host, what would you list? Well, for starters, he has an amazing co-host. <laughs> God damn it. Do you have a real question or not for me, Aaron? I mean, you're the one who wrote the segment, so, <laughs> I mean, an excellent co-host? I don't know. I don't know. He is a Catholic. He is papist scum. Okay, so George, what is the strangest thing you've ever stumbled upon in person? And I think I know the answer to this one, actually. Oh boy. Um, so there are a lot of possibilities, to be honest, but I'm going to go with uh, the first one that popped into my head, which is a time I was running through the forest after accidentally stepping on a wasp's nest, and I ended up in this clearing with a bunch of crucified mannequins. Mm. 
Sorry, I was taking a drink of uh, nourishing water. What did you say? I stepped on a wasp's nest in the woods and was being chased by wasps, and so I was just sort of blindly running, and I ended up stumbling into a clearing around the edge of which were a bunch of crucified mannequins. Okay, that is the one I was thinking of. Uh, did you ever figure out what the fuck <laughs> no. that was? No, you know, I haven't. Um, I don't know, it, se it seems cursed to, like, go back and look for the place again. I think it was revealed to me, and I don't, I don't, know, if I, I don't know if I'm ready to see it again. I bet if you went back, it wouldn't even be there. I mean, that's like that's that's probably true, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and what about you, Aaron? What's the strangest thing you've ever stumbled upon? Oh shit! Uh, I haven't thought about this that much, but I'm sure there's something. Uh, uh, oh man, I'm I'm thinking through where I've lived and all the weird shit I've seen, and well. There was that one time you and I walked to a Taco Bell or a Wendy's. I can't remember. And it was in this really nasty part of town. And we were walking back and we went by this fence. You remember this? There was like a person on the other side barking at us or some shit. This sounds vaguely familiar, but in that sort of vague abstract way, which might have been a dream. <laughs> that was pretty weird. And I know that definitely happened. But then again, uh, like... All of college was some sort of weird fever dream, so... Yeah, it definitely was. It, that was that was the era where we slipped into a new timeline and never looked back. Just wondered what the hell happened. <laughs> I mean, I still wonder what the hell happened. I mean, I have mentioned, I think, on the show that when I was in New York, I ran into Anthony Bourdain twice on the streets in Manhattan. And both times he was coming out of a Five Guys. That's very strange. I don't think you ever told me that. Yeah, and that was before he was, like, a cursed topic, too, because obviously he was still alive. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, gl I'm glad he was still alive when you saw him in New York. I, I mean, he was alive as far as I know. <laughs> I mean, he was coming out of a Five Guys. He could have been dead already. <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there goes my heater. Hope you guys don't hear that. I'm gonna turn it off, because it's already 70 degrees in here, and I'm, I'm happy. Anyway, so I think that should uh, bring us right into... Our, uh, our main topic today, which is not really, well, I mean, I don't really know. It could be weird, but computer, please bring up Charlemagne. Well, that's pretty banging, uh, but we don't have time for that right now. We have a lot of material to get through. Yeah, I was going to say, like, this isn't exactly Charlemagne, but I, I'm sure I'm sure you'll tie this in somehow. So, uh, computer, um, uh, uh, how do I, how do I get it to bring up, uh, Charlemagne, uh, uh, no, not the song! Ugh. Uh, maybe try it in a different language? Well, I mean, yeah, you're right. Obviously I can't do English, because all it does is play the goddamn song, so, uh... I mean, do you remember what happened on the Charles Charles Martel episode? We almost ended up doing Charles Twelfth of Sweden, or the band Sabaton, or some shit. Oh, I got it, I got it. Let's try doing it in German. Alright, alright. Well, that's worth a try. Computer! Wait, 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 wait. I know you're going to fuck up the German somehow and summon some sort of Viking demon. So can I do it? I've always wanted to call up the computer and you've never let me. I don't know. You're a mere co-host, but, you know, I guess if you insist. <laughs> Woo! All right. <clears throat> computer, please bring up Carl de Grossa. So, yes, I learned a lot during the Charles Martel episode that I didn't know. Uh, and, uh... 
I'm sort of wondering, like, what this, what the connection is. Obviously, they're, uh, related in some minor way. I really don't know for sure. But, uh, where's, what's our chronological slash, um, local context for Charlemagne? I'm glad you asked that, Aaron. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time on the background here. Uh, since especially because we did so much of the background on the Charles Martel episode. But in a way, this really sort of picks up right where that one left off, because I don't know if you remember, but right at the end, we talked about Charles Martel's son, Pepin, who happened to have a son who is Charlemagne. So we're actually very close in time. We're, we're pretty much a couple decades after the, the Charles Martel episode ended, and we're in that same place, the uh, the Kingdom of the Franks. Right. So I would encourage any of the listeners who... Uh, you know, you don't know who Charles Martel is. It's a banging episode, so you should go back and check that out. Um, if not, though, I'm sure I'm sure this is a fine place to start. Yeah, so let's uh, just run through some of the major stuff of that that you need to understand uh, for Charlemagne. So, Charles Martel, as I'm sure you remember, wasn't actually a king. He was the, quote, mayor of the palace of the Merovingian dynasty, which ruled the Kingdom of the Franks, and it was a weird sort of situation that developed over a few centuries where this guy, the mayor of the palace, was the one who actually controlled everything and the king just kind of sat there and browsed Facebook. Cool. <laughs> and so Charles Martel, who we talked about, was the mayor of the palace. He's the one who's running things, even though he's not actually a king. And um, he has this big, big kingdom, or rather not kingdom because he's not a king, and uh, he dies in 741 after expanding that kingdom that's not a kingdom because it's not his into a super large and powerful nation that stretches sort of across France, much of Germany, parts of Austria, the Czech Republic, northern Italy. Like, it's a very substantial uh, kingdom that he's not technically the king of, even though he rules it, which is a pretty good deal, honestly. Yeah, well, um, I see you've included a helpful picture of the uh, kingdom of the Franks. Or the, uh, uh, yeah, um, and it is quite a, quite a stretch of land with, uh, many, many locations. Suspiciously, uh, nothing in the, uh, in the, the island area. Oh, yeah, we, we, we stay away from the islands, nasty places. Wisely. <laughs> yep. So, like, it's a good, it's a good system, but the issue with it is that, uh, the pattern of the past few centuries has played out sort of again and again, where... Someone will consolidate and unify and strengthen the kingdom, but then when he dies, the powers of his office will get divided among his sons, and it's back to square one, with several weaker mayors of the palace competing with each other while the actual king just sort of sat there. And that's a component of what is called Salic Law, um, which is the law, traditionally, the law of the Franks, that you don't get to pass everything on to your oldest son, it has to get divided between your sons. This reminds me a little bit of the uh, King Wenceslaus episode where we had uh, basically like constant infighting because everybody was all divided up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like it's it's kind of nice and like it seems really fair when you think about it, but then you realize it's super counterproductive for actually having like stable kingdoms with continuity. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. So um, Charles, not the king, as we said, uh, once he was at the height of his power, though, he actually just stopped appointing a king at all. He still didn't call himself king of the Franks. He was still just the mayor of the palace, but 
But the palace was empty because he just stopped appointing a king, which is a really baller move to do when you think about it. In what way? <laughs> like, it's it's basically, it's making the fiction that he's not the king so incredibly thin when he doesn't even appoint someone else as the king, but he's still like, nope, I'm not the king. I'm just the mayor of the palace. I just I just take care of the day-to-day stuff. <laughs> I got you. Okay, I get it now. I see. Like, what it's, you're it's really like, you know, when there is someone who's king, even if you're wielding all the power, it's still like a little bit more believable. But when you don't actually even have a king, but you're still like, nope, I'm not the king. Definitely not the king here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, um, but that's what you can do once you kind of get to the point where you're super, super powerful. And so, Charles Martel, having done that, dies in 741 after appointing his two sons, Pepin and Carloman, to run his not-kingdom. And uh, they were going to take over the East and the West, respectively, though unlike their father, they actually did decide to appoint a king, a dude named Childeric, who was, in fact, pretty chill. Um, <laughs> but, of course, he didn't do anything. He just browsed Facebook while they ran the kingdom. But an interesting thing happened, which is that Carloman was super, super religious, and he decided in 747 that he was actually going to enter a monastery and leave the running of the whole kingdom to his brother Pepin. You know, this is, again, a lot like the uh, Wenceslaus episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wenceslaus was a very pious man, and, you know, he was accused of, by his own mother, um, he was accused of potentially becoming a monk instead of a ruler, and she did not like that, and that's a sordid tale on its all, all on its own, so if you missed that episode, again, go back. It's really, it's really crazy. It uh, gives a lot more uh, context to the, to the Christmas song that we all like so much. It is a good song. I love that one. Mm-hmm. So in, uh, in 751, however, Pepin, who of course controls the whole kingdom, decides that the whole farcical King of the Franks versus Mayor of the Palace thing is just kind of ridiculous, so he gets the go-ahead from the Pope, the nobility, and pretty much everyone else, who all agree that it was just kind of silly at this point. So with everybody's approval, he goes ahead and removes Childeric as king and um, told him he had to become a priest and stuck him in a monastery to keep him out of the way, <laughs> and then had an assembly of Frankish nobles elect him, him, Pepin, as king of the Franks. And he's anointed and crowned and all that. And then later on, the Pope actually comes up from Rome to do sort of a little ceremony to confirm it. So this is a big deal that finally, after literal centuries of running things but not calling themselves kings, this uh, this family has now actually adopted the title of king, and it's gonna gonna have quite a long history here. Could you fill me in on exactly where the Pope comes in on this? So our our idea of you know secular versus sacred is an incredibly new idea and historically there's no such thing really as secular power almost all power has a religious dimension and so one tended to need, need or at least very strongly want the approval of whatever the leading religious authority was to affirm that you were a legitimate king Okay, yeah, because we still do that shit today where, uh, you know, it's like the Pope recognizes the new president or whatever. Um, because for some reason, well, I don't want to say just for, just for some reason, but having the official stamp of approval from a religious leader, I think, helps a public figure's image quite a bit, even if you're not of that religious order for some reason. Um, but yeah. Yep. 
yeah, so the Pope, um, yeah, the Pope gives his his stamp of approval to the the dynasty change. And uh, so this new dynasty is what is called the Carolingian dynasty, since they were all descended from Charles Martel, and in Latin, Charles is Carolus, so Carolingian is the name of the dynasty. So this new Carolingian dynasty, headed by the newly kingified Pepin, uh, keeps itself very, very busy, mostly with war. He expanded mm. Frankish power into the formerly independent southern southern France and kind of pushed out all the borders a bit and did a lot of consolidation and sort of, you know, putting the kingdom on a very sturdy footing. But he also did a real solid for the Pope, which is going to turn out to be super important in world history. Hmm. I want to know more about this solid for the Pope. I mean, don't we all? Don't we all? So, but that's what we're going to talk about now. How how oh. Pepin did a solid for the Pope. Um, Sweet. So, the kingdom that which was ruling most of northern Italy at this time, so pretty much between the Franks and the Pope down in Rome, is what is called the Lombard Kingdom. Now, the Lombards were another one of these countless Germanic tribes that had moved in and settled parts of the Roman Empire in late antiquity, which is just what the Franks, you know, Pepin's uh, kingdom had done. The name Lombard is an anglicization of the Latin name Longobardi, which literally means longbeards, which is what the Romans <laughs> called them and is a pretty baller name. Yeah. <laughs> aren't, aren't they in Skyrim or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, like, uh, like so many other barbarian kingdoms, which we talked a little bit about on the Martell episode, they had ended up as Aryan Christians rather than Catholics, um, but they slowly transitioned to Catholic Christianity in the 7th and 8th centuries, mostly from, living, from having their kingdom in northern Italy and it just being easier if they were the same religion as the people they were ruling over. Right. So, real quick, though, uh, what's the difference between an Aryan Christian and a Catholic at this time? Aryan Christians do not believe Jesus is God. They think Jesus is the highest creature that God made. Catholic Christians think Jesus is God. Okay. You know, I saw an interesting movie about this once. It was called uh, Saving Christmas, and it starred Kirk Cameron, and there was a scene in which uh, some dude, I can't remember what his name is right now, um, who was the guy who opposed Arius? St. Nicholas? Yes, St. Nicholas, we covered him you, on the show. Aaron, it's Christmas Eve and you forgot about Santa Claus? I'm sorry, I was thinking about uh, Wenceslas a little too much, but there's a scene in that movie, which I recommend you watch, where St. Nicholas beats Arius with a stick in, like, a bar. It's hilarious, um, but that's neither here nor there. Please continue. <laughs> I, I don't even... I don't even know where I was at this point. But anyway, so it's a metaphor. <laughs> so the um the Lombards, yeah. So they're um they're Catholic mostly by this point, but they still tended to not get along great with their Catholic neighbors, which included the Pope and what was called the Exarchate of Ravenna, which was the areas of the former Western Roman Empire, except for Sicily and the islands, which were administratively attached to something else, that was loosely controlled by the Eastern Roman Empire after an incredibly destructive war in the mid-6th century called the Gothic War. Because you remember the Western Empire, we talked a lot about it, it kind of fell apart, it just, nobody could really say, you know, when it was really finished, it just kind of ceased to exist. Well, after that, the Eastern Empire, the Byzantines, decided they wanted to get it back, and they fought an incredibly destructive war and invaded, and all they did was really destroy everything, and they kind of 
held part of the Empire, but not very well, and nobody liked them, and it was just a bad situation all around. But they're still there, controlling part of Italy, uh, next to the Lombards, at this point. Roger. Yeah, and this, so this, this administration, the Exarchate, uh, was pretty much always in trouble in one way or another. Um, its relationship with the Pope, who officially controlled one little section of the Exarchate around Rome, so the Pope doesn't sort of control Rome on his own right, he technically governs Rome itself as a representative of the Byzantine Emperor. Um, but their relationship with the Pope is tenuous, especially when the Byzantine Emperors and the Roman Church end up on opposite sides of the iconoclast controversy in the 7th and 8th centuries, and their military presence is pretty pitiful. So, like, the Byzantines are like, it's, the Exarchate is not a super healthy, uh, you know, political entity. Right, and they're opposing each other on this iconoclast controversy. That's where uh, one side wanted to blow up all the icons and one side didn't, something like that? Basically, at this point, the Byzantine emperors wanted to blow up all the icons and the Pope didn't. Gotcha. Okay. And so that that became a big fault line. Um, and they, obviously, it's a big oversimplification, but it's a huge fault line between the East and the West um, when parts of the Empire become iconoclast and other parts don't. It's, it's a mess. Um, it's a mess. So, the Exarchate is looking really weak and tempting, and the Lombards, who are just over the border to the north and the uh, the west, they start coming down and conquering more parts of Italy from the Byzantines, uh, because it's really easy. And sometimes, the Pope tries to sort of keep everybody at peace in Italy, and sometimes he's successful and gets the Lombards and the Byzantines to have a truce, but it never lasts long and the Lombards just usually start taking stuff again, because, you know... It's the Byzantines. Like, who doesn't want to pick on them? Right. <laughs> yeah, and so eventually they kill the last Byzantine commander in Italy, the Exarch, as he was called, in 751. And uh, they continue gobbling up the lands of the Exarchate, including those around Rome itself, which were the ones that the Pope was supposed to be in charge of. And uh -oh. the Lombard king, Eistolf, also decides to try to do sort of a protection racket and demand that the Pope give him one solidus which is a, a gold, it's a gold coin denomination for every citizen of Rome as protection money. And that, that's a lot of money to be demanding from someone. Yeah, when you said he did the Pope a solid, I didn't expect it to be a solidus. <laughs> <laughs> King oh. of comedy. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. That was, that was solid. No, no. Solidus. So, uh, <laughs> yep. So the Pope is in a kind of a tough position because... Well, A, he probably literally can't afford that, because that would be a huge amount of money. And it was obvious that the Byzantines weren't going to be of any help, since they've just been getting their ass kicked by the Lombards, and they couldn't even prevent their own governor from getting axed, so they're probably not going to be able to help him. So in 753, the Pope, who is Stephen II at this point, texted King Pepin of the Franks over the Alps, whose switch to king he had approved, um, and <laughs> told him the situation. But here's the fun thing. He didn't actually text him, and this is pretty no cool. No way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the plot twist. But he went there in person, which is the first time in history that a pope crossed over the Alps. Oh. Whoa. And this is when the pope sort of performs the uh, like ceremony of uh, confirming the coronation of Pepin as king. And yes, yeah, the first time a pope crossed over the Alps into mainland Europe, which is kind of awesome. I'm trying to think of a joke about popes crossing over the Alps, but I can't come up with anything. 
Well, you know, let, let me know if you come up with something we can we can stop later for it. I'm going to interrupt you like 15 yeah. minutes from now and be like, <laughs> when, We're talking hey! about something that has nothing to do with this, and you're just like, and then the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the king of the Lombards, Eistolf, uh, hears about this, and so he actually goes and pulls Pepin's brother Carloman out of the monastery he was living in, which was in an area in Italy that the Lombards had conquered, and actually sends him north to try to either convince his brother Pepin to ignore the Pope, or to start some sort of rebellion. It's it's kind of unclear what exactly the plan was. He's just in the monastery, like, browsing dank Christian memes in the Babylon Bee, and this guy comes in, he's like, he's like, Carloman, you've gotta do something about the Pope! <laughs> Basically, um, and this thing is at this point, Carloman was already ill and very weak and pretty obviously close to death. Um, and so whether Carloman actually wanted to do this or how much coercion was involved is pretty unclear. But he he arrives in the north in the old in the old homestead um, and Pepin promptly ignores his request and puts him in a monastery in France where he dies soon after. So this was oh, not shit. a Because, I mean, he was already, like, almost dead when the Lombards pulled him out of the monastery and were like, you've got to go, you've got to go tell your brother not to do what the Pope says. <laughs> dies. Yeah. Dies. <laughs> See, it, call me ignorant, but I was, like, kind of thinking Carloman was, like, going to become Charlemagne. <laughs> like, he's going to change his name or something. And then you just pull him out of a monastery, put him in another one, and he just dies. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Anticlimactic, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, Pepin, having not been convinced by his brother, who's now dead, to ignore the Pope, is ready to roll, and, um, Eistolf again refuses to enter into diplomacy with Pepin or the Pope. Like, the Pope's like, look, I've called Pepin in, like, he's got my back, so, like, let's work this out, there's no need for this to get out of hand, and Eistolf is like, nah. And so... Yep. Uh, Pepin and the Franks go to war against Eistolf and the Lombards in support of Pepin's bro, the Pope. Gotcha. Okay. And so in the spring of uh, the year 755 at this point, Pepin crosses over the Alps and defeats Eistolf in the Val de Souza in northern Italy, and they sign a treaty at the city of Pavia, which is the Lombard capital. And with this treaty, Eistolf is forced to return the conquered territories to the Byzantines, and Pepin just is like, well, job well done, everybody. And he packs up and goes home. I've got the joke. I've got the Alp joke. Okay. Okay. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> Pepin crossed the Alps, if you know what I mean. <laughs> hey! <laughs> I, hey! I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> come on, cross the Alps. Come on. Come on. He's a cat. Cro nah, okay, never mind. It's bad. Twin Peaks, that's the joke. Oh! <laughs> well, I'm sorry I'm too pure for you, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yep, yep, all right. Anyway. Cross your Alps. Um, so, kind of predictably, once the Frankish army is back behind the Alps, Eistolf is like, okay, game on again. And he again besieges Rome in the winter of 756. Like, literally right after, you know, the treaty. Um... Oh, gotcha. So and so Pep Yeah, and so Pepin's like, damn it, do I have to come down there again? And, well, he can't right away because you can't actually walk over the Alps in the middle of winter because the passes are all filled with snow and ice, so Pepin just has to wait until the spring. But when spring comes and the snow melts, Pepin again moves into Italy and again defeats the Lombard king and this time besieges him at the capital of Pavia. 
and Eistolf realizes that he's fucked up, and so he surrenders and agrees to pay one-third of the Lombard treasury to the Franks as uh, sort of reparations for breaking the treaty. Hmm. He also agrees to relinquish all the lands that he had taken from Rome and from the other parts of the Exarchate. So, you remember what happened last time. Pepin gave the land back to the Byzantines, and this had been an absolute non-starter, because they literally did nothing, and Eistolf just walked in and took it back after Pepin had left. Right. And so, Pepin's like, do I really want to give it to the Byzantines again, uh, since they literally didn't do anything? And this is a pretty important piece of territory. It extends diagonally across Italy... Uh, from the Tyrrhenian Sea in the west to the Adriatic Sea. So, like, it's a strategically important and pretty big area. Right. And he doesn't just want to hand it back over to the Byzantines, who are just going to lose it again. So yeah. he decides to try something new. Uh-oh. He officially signs over all this land that was retaken to the Pope to govern and manage, since, unlike the Byzantines, the Pope was actually there in Italy and was able to administer it. And this uh, is called the Donation of Pepin, and it's a really freaking big deal in the history of Europe, because this donation made the Pope officially a temporal ruler in his own right for the first time. Interesting. Because up to this point, he'd, you know, he'd governed Rome and its immediate in area, but not in his own... He governed it as a bit, sort of as a representative of the Byzantine emperor. He's running the church, but also has to run the city of Rome. Um, but this, but now he suddenly is a ruler on his own without any, you know, reliance on another power. I'm trying to like wrap my brain around what that could mean for the future of this area. <laughs> but I'm sure so, we'll see. Yeah. So in actuality, you know, the popes had already been doing a lot of sort of temporal management and governance since the papacy was pretty much the only institution in late Roman Italy that had any long-term stability. And so as Byzantine control in the West started to shit the bed, Uh, The popes were pretty much the only people in Italy who could keep civil institutions running and, like, you know, keep the roads plowed and stuff. You know, it's funny, because, like, we don't even think about popes doing that kind of thing these days. They're just, like, they just, like, do, you know, they ride around in the Pope mobile and they wave at people and, you know, they do all this sort of irritating PR shit. Yeah, it's lame. It's really lame. Yeah. They They don't do anything, like. When are we going to get another pope who can control a large stretch of territory and protect it from the Lombards? I mean, like... Exactly. Like, that's what I look for in a pope. Um, <laughs> definitely. But yeah, so the, the papacy ends up with uh, with this big chunk of land. And as we, you know, as we saw before, they were only previously controlling one little piece of the Exarchate, and they were controlling it on behalf of the Byzantines. But now, suddenly, the pope was officially ruling a pretty significant state. And this state is what would be what would come to be known later in the Middle Ages as the Papal States. Oh, I've heard of those. Yeah, so that's how that happened. Uh, Pepin got tired of the Byzantines being pushovers, and so he gave it to the Pope. <laughs> Pepin Pope. I don't know. Pope <laughs> Pepin. So Popin. <laughs> Sorry. So as we as we said, Pepin was really busy expanding the kingdom and fighting wars and stuff and helping the Pope right up to the end of his life. Uh, he died in 768 at the age of 54 while on a military campaign, which is probably what he would have wanted. Um, mm-hmm. And so in accordance with that Salic law we talked about, 
His kingdom gets split up between his sons, who are named Charles and Carloman, which is nice that he named one of his sons after his brother who died in the monastery. (laughs) (laughs) And one after uh, Charles Martel, I'm assuming. Yes, and the other one after Charles Martel, his father, and that Charles is the one that we call Charlemagne. And so before we get into the life of Charlemagne proper... Um, Since it gets really fast-paced, I thought this would be a good time to take a little break and uh, turn it over to you for the honorable mention. Fantastic. And I am ready this week. I actually have one. Um, Let me mark this so I can put in our honorable mention music. And introduce the segment to those of you who don't know what it is. In our research, uh, George and I come across lots of little people who have really interesting stories, but not quite enough to do a full episode on. And we like to throw these in as a new thing in order to break up what could be an extensive, you know, and deep and tough story. Uh, So this week, we have an honorable mention who goes by one name only, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, so help me out with this. It looks like Stanzik, but it's Polish. How would that be pronounced? Do you know? Um, how's it spelled? I know you sent it to me, but I have forgotten... It's Stan C Z Y K. That Stanchik. See, I'm try- I get all my Slavic languages mixed up. <laughs> I think, I think that's basically a sh, which is a slightly palatalized sh. So it's kind of a sh crossed with a ch. Um, okay. I wouldn't worry about it. Okay, <laughs> we could just call him Stan. <laughs> we, we could call Stanley. Stanley? Okay, we'll call him Stanley for now. Um, I'll remind you, though, that his real name is Stan... Stan... Okay, whatever. All right, so <clears throat> allow me to regale to you a story of foolery that rivals few others. It's a story of an entertainer with a far-reaching legacy and a story that may not, in fact, be true at all. But it is a story that strikes true, nonetheless. This is the stale, uh, the stale. (laughs) This is the tale of Stancic the Fool, a Polish jester mentioned in documents written during the time of the Renaissance. And he's mentioned like twice in like two sheets of paper, but he's well known culturally at this time uh, around Poland. Uh, And he may be a sort of monomythical sort of figure, um, but more than likely he was based on a real person named Stancic. But again, when you get to this era... You know, it's it's kind of hard to track people down. I mean, it's not like they have, you know, Google Maps and check-ins on Facebook or anything. So I'm just going to say, we don't really know much about him. After all, he was a mere court jester of Lilbeth. But he is remembered as more than that in cultural history. And perhaps the most famous depiction of Stanzik, and this is the reason I'm actually covering him, um, is because I saw a painting. Um, and it's aptly entitled Stanzik, and it's by Jan Matejko, 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 whatever. Um, and in this painting, you can see, you'll see a court jester in sort of your typical jester garb. It's these tight red trousers, red slippers, a red jacket, and that multi-pointed red jester's hat. But the reason this painting captures, captured my attention and made me want to learn the story behind it, and I can't even remember where I saw it. I was probably just like, I, oh, I remember where I found it. I was trying to come up, I was thinking like, what would be an interesting topic for the show? And I was like, maybe there's some famous jesters. And then I clicked around at Google jester. And then this painting just came up of this fool sitting in a chair looking really, really troubled. And behind him is a ball or a party or some other such frivolity just sort of clicking along. 
And it sort of appears in this painting that this fool has taken himself away from the merriment to ponder some kind of grave topic. His eyes are deep set in shadow and his hands are folded across his chest as he slouches in a chair and he's just like searching the floor for answers. And it's a really, it's a really striking painting um, because, you know, he's dressed like a fool, but he's deep in thought. Have you seen, you've seen this painting, right? Yeah, no, when you sent it to me, I recognized the painting. I'd seen that. I just had no idea what the story behind it was. Yeah, I don't think it's the first time I've seen it when I Googled it. Um, in fact, I feel like I saw it while I was browsing art museums online. Um, but I, I wanted to find the story behind this because it's a really interesting painting. And if you want to Google it, it's Stan CZYK. Just if you Google that, it'll be the first thing you see. It's a really, it's worth seeing. Um, but this depiction is purportedly of Stanzik's reaction to an event that occurred in 1514. Uh, when the Russians captured Smolensk during the Muscovite-Lithuanian War, which I know nothing about, but it was a war, and in the background there's a party going on, and it's like, hmm. Um, and Stanzik was known, was obviously a fool, and he was really funny, and everybody knew, like, he was probably the best comedian in the world. Um, but he was also known for his sort of troubled dark side. Um, and because he was so good at humor, he was permitted as the court jester to joke about very serious topics. He was allowed to make fun of royalty, the political situation of the day. And, you know, when he called out general hypocrisy in the presence of his audience, um, people really liked it. He was good enough to get away with it. Because, I mean, you know, the, you know the story of jesters. Sometimes they would go too far and then get, like, killed or whatever. Um, Stanzik was such a pro-comedian that he always got away with it. Um, and we've got some stories... Um, and I'm going to tell one of them. And this is, uh, this is one very well-known cultural story, uh, about Stanzik, and it takes place during a hunt. So you see, in 1533, King Sigismund the Old was tired, old, and also old. <laughs> and <laughs> when old guys get bored, what do they do? They do weird shit. Um, and if you've ever seen Secondhand Lions, it's basically true to life. We're about to get there. Have you seen that movie? Oh, I love that movie. It's a good movie. So, old King Sigismund has a plan to bring uh, some fun in for a weekend. So he sends out an order uh, for his men to capture a massive Lithuanian bear and bring it to his court. Um, and at this point, the story could go many, many different directions. Um, <laughs> a dancing bear would be one of them. Um, but it, not in this case. We're talking secondhand lions. Uh, he did just want to look at it. He wanted to see the biggest bear they could find. Um, but he also wanted to hunt the goddamn thing. <laughs> so there's where your secondhand lions bit comes in. Excellent. Um, so he has it released into a forest near Krakow and proceeds to gather together his court and all his noblemen and even the queen to go and kill this bear. Um, and included in this party was none other than Stanzik himself, who was definitely along for the ride, uh, because they didn't have amazing and hilarious history podcasts back then. So, uh, like, rate, subscribe, everybody. We are your Stanzik. Yeah, um, I mean, what, what else you get to listen to while you're, you know, on the on the drive to the forest for the bear hunt? No, I, you know, it's like I, I spiritually align with Stanzik. They're, like, riding out there, and they're, like, looking for the bear and all where, and he goes, you know what? Fuck the British Empire. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's me every time I get invited out in public. Well, back when I used to get invited out in public. I was going to say, when's the last <laughs> time you went on a bear hunt? <laughs> um, so Stanzik and the king and all the nobles go out in the forest to hunt for this bear. And like I said, they brought the queen along um, and basically literally everybody else who had a say in the court. They were all just going to go 
through this forest and have a grand old time. And this is the part where we cut to a bear making a headband from loose straps of fabric and covering himself in mud for camouflage and all the while <laughs> muttering, They drew first blood, not me. <laughs> You've seen first blood, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, so yeah, imagine Rambo Bear. So the party arrives in a particularly dense section of the forest, and the king and Stanzik realize that they are in fact not the hunters, but the hunted. And that's when a massive Lithuanian bear with nothing but a speech impediment and a dream leaps out of the bushes and f opens fire with a stolen 50 cal. Um, and Stanzik, being a practical, pragmatic fellow, bolts while the king and his men have to fight off this Rambo bear. Um, well, you kind of know how this ends, though. The bear didn't really have a 50 cal, and it really wasn't the bear's war to win, but it was his to fight. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the bear is eventually brought down, uh, and in the moments afterwards, Stanzik returns to the party and he's like all cool or whatever. Like I didn't run away. And King Sigismund the old is furious at Stanzik for fleeing in the face of danger. And he says, you know, you're such a coward and I can't even believe I have a coward like you in my court. And Stanzik simply replies, it is a greater folly to let a bear out that was already in a cage. <laughs> and that may sound like nothing, and it may seem obvious. Um, and the king kind of, you know, he was asking for it. He did capture a massive Lithuanian bear, send it to Vietnam, and bring it home and not allow it to, you know, work at a car park. <laughs> another <laughs> another little Rambo reference there. Um, but this, this joke, it's a greater folly to let out a bear that was already in a cage, uh, was apparently some kind of political joke about uh, Poland making war with Prussia, winning and not completely incorporating it into the Polish crown, because this would, of course, make it a potential enemy and a threat in the future. So Stanzik was saying, hey, like, you beat them, why would you give it to the Byzantine Empire? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yep, yep. Yeah, he's like, you got the bear in a cage, why the hell would you let it out again? Um, so anyway, that's just one little story. Um, and we know little else about this fool, except his brooding tone behind the mask of a fool. Uh, and, it, and how it apparently made a very large impact on political commentary. And this character, um, taking on almost a mythical form at this point, appears in many Polish works of literature and theater as something like a god of skeptical politics. Um, and sort of like pragmatism and like, you know, common sense. Like, don't do the stupid shit you know you shouldn't do, you know? Um, just this sort of like, you try, you know, fool me once, shame on you, me, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Like, that kind of, that kind of stuff. Um, and there's one well-known appearance of Stanzik in a play, which is Polish, called The Wedding. And it's the story of a wedding, um, it's basically set up to show how in the face of a chance of, uh, at national freedom, the generation of that era in Poland, which was in the early 1900s, was basically pissing away their chance by focusing on distractions instead of re matters of real importance. Um, and most of Europe was going sort of through this, like, teenage party phase in the early 1900s, which caused tons of problems. Um, and Stanzik showing up in this, uh, this, this play was a little bit prophetic of what we would see in the early 1900s. Um, there's a scene in this play, The Wedding, uh, in which the fool Stanzik visits a journalist in order to accuse him of being a do-nothing loser who merely parties and writes about the state of affairs in Poland and... You know, he says, you know, you're like, you're so annoying, you're just bemoaning the horrors of this coming era, like there's nothing you can do, uh, instead of doing something. Um, which, you know, if you're aware, like, the philosophical, uh, state at this point in history was like, you know, it's like Nietzsche was saying, we're about to lose a couple million people, at the very least, because of what we're setting up here. 
and nobody's doing anything, so I'm just gonna become a nihilist, uh, save a horse, and go crazy. Um, but this is this is Stanzik's office is basically to come in and say, hey, like you're saying it's coming, but you're not doing anything. You're just going, oh my god, it's coming, it's co it's gonna happen. Um, but you're not doing anything, so that's where Stanzik uh, plays his role. You gotta get those clicks, man. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> um, fear porn is real. So anyway, so Stanzik, of course, is ignored by this journalist, and the play ends with everyone dancing like marionettes as Stanzik and other gods of, uh, of political wisdom look on in shame and sadness, like you guys are just partying. Um, and that's, that brings me to close this with just saying that the best thing about Stanzik, in my opinion, is that painting at the top of his Wikipedia page. He has that grave look, that intense gaze as the merriment goes on behind him. And it really does reflect an archetype in history that we've actually come to see a lot in the show. Uh, but that's all I have. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Excellent. I would just add a historical note there. Um, the you, We keep getting Lithuania, Poland, back and forth. It's because there's this weird period of a couple centuries where Poland and Lithuania are the same country. Um, hmm. So that's what's going on there is that, yeah, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is weird because the Poles and the Lithuanians have almost nothing to do with each other culturally, linguistically, or anything, but they end up having one country for a while. So that's what's going on there in the background. Well, that's good to know, see, because I don't know stuff like that. I thought, you know, Carloman was going to become Charlemagne, and then uh, um, he died, and then we got another Carloman, and now I'm just really confused. Um so with that, I think we should get back to Charlemagne. Unless you had more you wanted to say about Stanzik. No, no, just no, just that note about the the old Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Cool. Alrighty. All right. So yeah, so Pepin died. That was that was what we got. Pepin died, and he he had sorry his kingdom gets uh, split between his sons Charles and Carloman, and Charles is of course the man we will eventually call Charlemagne. Charles the Great, but people obviously didn't call him that till later, but to avoid confusion, we're just going to call Charles Charlemagne right from the get-go. Um, it's easier that way. I support um, this decision. Yeah, it just, it's, it's better for everyone. So at age 26, Charlemagne comes into this joint kingship with his younger brother, Carloman, who was 17, so it was, you know, a decent age difference between them, nine years. Um, Charlemagne is in charge of stuff in the north and the west, while Carloman is in charge of stuff in the south and the east of the kingdom. And they, they get a, um, a nice little joint test really early on, because soon after uh, Pepin dies, there's an uprising in Aquitaine, which is in southwestern France, and which overlaps the divide between their two halves of the kingdom. So mm. they both have to deal with it, because it's taking place in both their halves. So Charlemagne and Carloman both arrive in the area with their armies, but after meeting together, Carloman refuses to participate and leaves with his army, leaving Charlemagne to deal with the whole rebellion himself. Hmm. It's not clear what was going on here. Uh, we don't really know what happened, what passed between them, but it seems like a pretty good sign that relations between the fraternal co-kings are already a bit rocky since Carloman just kind of peaced out and left Charlemagne to deal with the rebellion on his own. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, fortunately, um, their, uh, their mother, Charlemagne and Carloman's mother, Bertrada, is still alive, and so she's able to sort of keep them, keep them civil. So, you know, Charlemagne deals with that rebellion on his own, and he's uh, grumpy and kind of upset that Carloman left him high and dry, but because their mother is still alive, um, she, you know, 
keeps the boys playing nicely, basically. Unlike Wenceslaus's mother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, she didn't murder anyone as far as I know. Like, <laughs> yeah, probably a much better deal overall. Yeah. But uh, Charlemagne is no fool, and, you know, he's not going to just uh, sit by and not, you know, take precautions. Um, he does, it seems like he expects that this status quo isn't going to last forever, and so he starts preparing for what is probably, in his vision, the inevitable break with his brother when they have to fight each other. In 770, I almost said 1770, uh, Charlemagne <laughs> signs a treaty with Tassilo, the Duke of Bavaria, who had b- rebelled against Pepin. He had been one of Pepin's vassals, but had rebelled and broken away from his kingdom. Well, Charlemagne makes an agreement with him and brings him sort of back into the fold. And Charlemagne also gets married. Yay! Yay. He marries Desiderata, the daughter of Desiderius, who just so <laughs> happened to be the king of the Lombards down in northern Italy, because Istolf is dead. And so Desiderius is their king, and he has a daughter. Desiderata and Charlemagne marries her. Well, that seems like a good diplomatic move from what we've seen. Yeah, so it seems like Charlemagne was expecting things in uh, in Francia to pop off between him and his brother and wanted to have allies on all sides of his brother's part of the kingdom because between Bavaria and now northern Italy, he now has three sides you know he's on one side of his brother and now he has allies on two other sides of his brother so it seems like he's really expecting something to go down and wants to be ready Mm -hmm. but uh something seems to have happened between him and the lombards and there's really no explanation of what exactly this was but within a few months of this marriage um the marriage was annulled you know they did not have any children um they may not have even actually lived together um, so it's not sure what happened, but Desiderata was sent back to her father in northern Italy. Maybe they just didn't get along and didn't like each other, or maybe Charlemagne decided that he had other diplomatic priorities, and since you can only have one, you know, one wife at any given time, he decided it wasn't worth it uh, being married to, into the Lombard family when there were, uh, other possibilities. I don't know. It's hard to say. Disregard female royalty, acquire diplomacy. (laughs) Basically. So it probably is diplomatic because Charlemagne is really quickly married again, this time to a princess named Hildegard, who was from an important noble family that had a lot of influence and a lot of land possessions within Carloman's part of the kingdom. So huh. why, uh, you know, why have a marriage alliance on the other side of your brother's kingdom when you could actually start making marriage alliances within your brother's kingdom? <laughs> so, so, yeah, uh, it, it's hilarious. This uh, this whole like marriage for diplomacy thing. It's so foreign <laughs> these days. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's what it's what everybody does. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it seems like something is really about to go down um, between Charlemagne and Carloman. And Desiderius, of course, is kind of pissed off. Like, he's very offended that Charlemagne, you know, dismissed his daughter. And so he actually makes overtures to Carloman about forming an alliance against Charlemagne. So, like, Uh-oh. this is shaping up to be quite a quite a boogaloo. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Way to but... use that stupid word. <laughs> <laughs> but before anything happens... Um, Carloman uh, dies in 771. And I know what you're thinking, but nothing in the historical record suggests foul play. Like, this is, you know, the, the 8th century. People die a lot. It seems like it was natural causes. That was just really convenient. Hmm. Very convenient. Mm. Indeed. 
And so uh, Carloman's wife and children actually then leave Francia, and they go down to Italy to the court of Desiderius, since they figured that uh, they figured that after having his daughter jilted by Charlemagne, Desiderius was unlikely to be making any deals with the Franks, and would maybe help them, you know, get back part of the kingdom eventually. And so they go and hang out with Desiderius in northern Italy. Got it. And they're just like sitting around like, man, that Charlemagne guy. What a yep. dick, right? <laughs> yeah, no, in like the ancient world, people spend a lot of time sitting around somewhere after leaving wherever they're from and kind of waiting for their moment to do something. This happens yeah. a lot. And sometimes the moment that. just never comes. Okay. <laughs> um, so with all this stuff going on up north, um, and also a little matter of papal succession, because... One pope died, that was Pope Stephen, who Pepin had helped, and he was another pope had, you know, been elected, this is Pope Adrian. There's a lot of stuff going on, and the Lombards had been in the process of handing back all the towns that they had taken. Because you remember Pepin, you know, made them give everything back, and, like, they'd kind of been like, yeah, we can't do it all at once, we've got to, like sort out the administration and get the books in order. We're going to, you know, do it over a couple years. And so they're still in the process of handing back all the stuff they were supposed to hand back. And at the, around this time, they just kind of stopped doing that and thought, oh, there's a lot of stuff going on. They're getting a new pope. Like, maybe we'll just not give any of these stuff back and they won't notice. Well, Clever. sorry, I had to mute my mic because there was somebody backing up with a truck and it was really irritating. Um, I was kind of distracted. What What was the last thing you said? <laughs> so was that um the Lombards at this time stopped giving back the lands they were in the process of signing back over to the Pope because after Pepin did all his stuff and they right. agreed to give everything back, they were going to do it gradually. Um, you know, because they had to switch over administration, like get the books in order or what. But around this time, they just stopped the process of giving stuff back. Mm. because they thought with everything going on and with the papal succession that maybe people just wouldn't notice. Um, yeah, they just forget that this was going on. I get yep. it. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, with everything else happening, um, and with Carloman dead, the whole war against Charlemagne didn't seem like it was going to happen. So Desiderius is, you know, more interested in, you know, consolidating in Italy, and with the, you know, the papal succession, he's like, I'm just going to keep these towns and lands and stuff. Um He's hoping as well, Desiderius, that is, uh, to use Carloman's fi family to destabilize Charlemagne and keep him occupied on the other side of the Alps. So he goes to the Pope and tells him that he wants him to crown Carloman's young sons as Frankish kings in opposition to Charlemagne. And the Pope wasn't really about that, because um, you remember, like, Charlemagne's dad, Pepin, had been, like, a really big ally of the papacy, and... Mm -hmm. So it would be predictable that Charlemagne would probably be a big ally. And so the Pope doesn't want to just, like, you know, piss off Charlemagne by crowning his dead brother's sons as kings in opposition to him. So the Pope is like, yeah, no, not going to do that. By the way, um, weren't you supposed to give back all those towns? He's, the, Pope, <laughs> the Pope did notice, in fact, um, that while he was taking over being Pope after the old Pope died, that the process of giving back the lands had kind of stopped. <laughs> And well, yes, yeah, so, so Desiderius um, is like, nope, not going to do it. What gives? I want the towns back. And yeah. Desiderius um, is like, well, the gig is up. He he figured it out. And so he responds to this, not by giving up the towns he was supposed to, but 
as Lombards seem to have a habit of doing, he invades and starts taking over even more towns and regions from the papacy. So not only did he stop giving back what he was supposed to give back, he's like, you know what, I'm taking stuff back. I'm taking stuff back now that I'd previously returned to the Pope. The Pope is just sitting around reading the Bible, and he gets a, a little notification on his phone. He looks down, and it's just a Snapchat from Desiderius. It's like... <laughs> in, in one of the towns he was supposed to be controlling. Yeah, a selfie in the town. <laughs> Felt cute, might delete later. <laughs> So, predictably, the Pope isn't exactly thrilled about this. Uh, so, mm. you know, who are you going to call? Lombard busters. <laughs> that that wasn't the right number of syllables. Um, oh, damn see. it. <laughs> who are you going to call? Lombusters. Uh, Lombardsters. <laughs> yeah, it's work in progress. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so probably you're going to call the successor of the person you called last time, the person who brokered the arrangement that is currently being violated by the Lombards, and the person who you just kind of did a favor for by not crowning a king in opposition to. He's like, yeah, Charlemagne kind of owes me. Like, I'm going to tell him what's going on and make him deal with it. So the Pope sends a team of representatives to Charlemagne to let him know that the Lombards are violating the arrangement that his father Pepin had made and being dicks. Right. The, the Lombards also send a delegation to Charlemagne to say that none of this is true. <laughs> Lobbyists. It's great. So not only for political reasons, um, you know, that he was very closely allied with the papacy, but probably also because the Lombards were literally doing what they said they weren't doing. <laughs> right. Charlemagne sided with the Pope and told Desiderius to knock it off. Um, and Desiderius responds by swearing an oath that he would never comply with an order from Charlemagne, and he continues to harass the Pope. Uh-oh. So yeah, Desiderius really just, I don't know what his deal is, man. Desideringus, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I love that, that they send the delegation to say they're not doing it, when, like, they're literally doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, he thinks he can fool Charlemagne into just, like, not doing anything. Oh, yeah, your brother who, like, really didn't like you, his family's, you know, hanging out in my court or whatever. We're not doing it. Nothing's happening. Nothing's going on. Look away. Nothing's Look away. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So in uh, in 773, uh, Charlemagne and his uncle Bernard cross the Alps and chase the Lombards out of the Pope's land and back to Pavia, which is the Lombard capital, which they then besiege. Uh, so Charlemagne leaves his uncle Bernard in charge there of the siege, and he leaves to deal with Adelchus, who's Desiderius' son, who is trying to raise another army over at Verona to lift the siege. Well, with Charlemagne on his way, Adelchus flees to Constantinople to try to get the Byzantines to support the Lombards against the Pope and Charlemagne, but he wasn't really getting anywhere, so he did not get a Byzantine army to come back with, and he's, he's just over there trying. So with, un with, uh, with Uncle Bernard still sieging the Lombards of Pavia, Charlemagne uh, visits Rome and officially reaffirms the donation made by his father Pepin, you know, that all those lands were going to be the Pope's, that he's now taking back from the Lombards again. Um, and he is officially made a Roman patrician since, as we talked about in the Charles Martel episode, a lot of like titles and ranks and stuff from ancient Rome were preserved into the Middle Ages, even though the empire hadn't existed for centuries and, you know, all the original social meaning and is gone, they still maintain a lot of these things. And so the Pope like gives him the special lapel pin and ribbon that means he's a Roman patrician and is like, thanks man, you're a bro. So, okay, what is a Roman patrician, then? The patricians were the... 
higher social class, basically. Uh, everyone in Rome belonged definitively to a social class, and different political offices were open to different social classes. Um, so, like, there were some offices that if you were in the upper class, you were not allowed to hold. They had to be held by someone from the lower class, and vice versa. There were offices that you could only hold if you were from the upper class. And so, like, these distinctions are super important in the Roman Republic a thousand years before this. Uh, Fascinating. But they, be they sort of maintained as honorary things. So, like, I don't know if you remember, but Odoacer, the barbarian king who deposed the last Western Roman Empire, was technically a Roman patrician. Oh, man, that's interesting. Uh, real quick question. So you've got your patrician class. What other classes were there in this? So you have your patricians, um, and then you have your plebeians, which are the people, and then there's the middle one, which aren't they aren't the lower class, but they aren't quite they aren't all the way to the upper class, and they're called the equestrians, or the equites, which means knights. They're the people who are, like, wealthy enough to own a horse but not super rich. Okay, that's good to know. I, I, I think a, lo a lot of people use the word plebs these days, and they don't really understand that it was actually, it wasn't just like a pathetic lower class, it was just... Yeah, no, it's like a defined... Status And it's funny because one of the most powerful offices in ancient Rome is the Tribune, who had to be from the plebs. And so you actually have a really famous case where a patrician named Claudius officially gave up his upper class status and became part of the lower class so that he could run for that office. Fascinating. Yep. We'll have to cover that kind of thing sometime <laughs> yeah no definitely definitely yeah. so anyway so um charlemagne is a roman patrician he gets the fancy lapel pin and all that um and he returns to pavia with his new lapel pin just as the lombards surrender the city in exchange for being you know given mercy and not being killed uh which charlemagne enough. charlemagne agrees to is like okay just like knock it off please um, Desiderius is sent into retirement in a monastery, which is just what you do at this time. Like if you want to, if you want to keep someone out of the way, but you don't want to kill them, you just send them into a monastery. <laughs> to brew beer and coffee and make mugs with two handles, you know, all that kind yep, of shit. Exactly. And so he sends him into a monastery in Northern France, which brush off your geography is pretty far from northern Italy where his kingdom was, so he's unlikely to be able to cause any trouble from up there. Right. Um, since he's, you know, he has no political connection there at all, so he's just kind of going to be there in the monastery until he dies. And his son, Adelchus, was actually still just sort of hanging out ineffectually in Constantinople, still not having succeeded in doing anything. <laughs> so there's not really anyone left to oppose Charlemagne among the Lombards. Desiderius is in a monastery far away. Adelchus is hanging out in Constantinople ineffectually. So it's like, okay, I think we've got this, this one settled. Um, but here's where Charlemagne does something that's pretty unique. So instead of making Northern Italy a part of Francia and, you know, officially subjugating it or like picking a Lombard and installing him as puppet king to rule while taking cues from Charlemagne, Charlemagne summons together all the Lombard nobles at Pavia and he has himself crowned as the king of the Lombards and has all the nobles pledge loyalty to him. So he doesn't dismantle the kingdom, he just sort of becomes king of that kingdom as well, but lets it stay as the Lombard kingdom. That is an alpha move if I ever heard one. Yeah, I know. It's, it's 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 really quite a brilliant political strategy. And it's pretty significant too because, you know, all the conflict between uh, you know, the uh the Franks and the Lombards is like 
Oh yeah, well, how about this? How about we just all, like, stop our petty squabbles and stick together? Like, here's an idea, <laughs> you know? <laughs> groundbreaking <laughs> uh, right <laughs> so and this is sort of a this is sort of a little digression but it's a super fun fact so i wanted to put it in here the crown of the king of the lombards was called the iron crown of lombardy um because the gold and silver and the gems in it are all built up around this sort of single plain metal strip uh that looks like iron that runs through the center of it all and what the tradition was, you know, even as far back as this, was that this uh, this strip was iron that was hammered out from a nail used in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's why they called it the Iron Crown, because they believed it was built up around this iron nail. Um, the crown is believed to have been made at the order of St. Helena for her son, the Emperor Constantine, because St. Helena is the one who sort of took over things in the Holy Land after Constantine became Christian and was super into gathering um, relics and anything that had to do with the life of Jesus or early martyrs. And she, um, among other things, you know, allegedly found the uh, the nails used in the crucifixion. She had a, I think she had a vision of a place to dig and then like found, found the nails buried or whatever. But anyway, so that's the tradition of this crown, but here's the really cool thing. It actually still exists and you can go see it. It's still on display in Milan, this crown. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh scientific testing um, of the metals has shown that it could actually be from the fourth century, the time of Constantine. Um, it's sometime like fourth to sixth century is when it originated. So it actually is that old. Um, but sadly, the iron band is actually an, a silver alloy, not iron. So it can't have been a nail. However, some of the medieval descriptions are a bit ambiguous and may actually indicate that the nail was part of like a separate piece that was on top and isn't on the crown anymore. Anyway, it's just really cool that this crown is, you know, from the fourth century, but it's still around and you can go see it. I just think that's awesome. I think I think it's awesome, but I also am not sure if I can think of a better way to blaspheme <laughs> than to hammer a nail that was used to crucify Christ so you can put it on your fancy hat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's... Fight the me. Ancient world, <laughs> the ancient world is weird about that stuff because, like, for them... It was a way of honoring and respecting relics to, like, incorporate them into things. And so, like, they would take relics of saints and, like, have them set into the hilt of swords and stuff. Because it was, for them, a way of honoring, um, saints, too. Sure. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just being me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that is a cool story, though. And, uh, I, uh, where'd you say it was? In Milan? Yeah. To Milan, northern Italy, that's where the kingdom of the Lombards was. Man, I feel like we should do a whole episode on relics like this, because when uh, Notre Dame burned or whatever, they were like, oh yeah, by the way, like the, the crown of thorns survived, and I was like, what the fuck, they have that? Uh, oh yeah, like, no, I could talk for literally days about relics. Um, well, we should do one, you know, your Catholic ass could probably school us all a little bit. <laughs> Hey man, I, I I do have a long a long history and fascination with relics, so put it on the agenda. Yeah, I mean I find them interesting, and you know I I I think it's you know if we did a special on that or something that would be pretty cool because you know I think those kinds of stories about like oh this holy relic you know it's uh there's always these like these like crazy ass tales about like how this this was found and um that reminds me of when James was on we did uh we did um 
I can't remember who, but he couldn't get onto the episode, and we were, I was doing an episode with Neil, and he couldn't get on the show, and then, like, because he was at work, and then, like, halfway through, he shows up, and the first thing he says is, Have they found the Holy Spear of Christ yet? And it was just so funny. I don't know. Ah, the Lance of Longinus. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I know. I you know. know. I know. Anyway, so where, where where were we? Oh, yeah, so Charlemagne becomes King of the Lombards. Um, right. That's that's where that's where we're at. Um, so in any case, uh, by simply taking up you know this existing king's kingship, Charlemagne was able to make a really smooth transition of power. Because um, the Lombard nobles of northern Italy pretty easily went along with it because they still got to stay you know the king of the Lombards. Um, in central Italy, which is of course a little bit further from you know his power base up over the Alps, it's a little harder. Uh, there's a rebellion in. Seven seventy six. Seven seventy six will commence again <laughs> by the Dukes Hrodgard and Hildebrand. Yeah, Hrodgard <laughs> is like seven seventy six will commence again. Shout out to all, all my Hildebrand gang. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Charlemagne has to haul ass down from Germany, and he handily defeats them. Especially since this rebellion was allegedly you know, in the name of Desiderius' son, Adelchus, who is still in Byzantium doing nothing. Hitting the uh, useless bastard trail. <laughs> yeah, and so it's hard for them to really get much support. Charlemagne defeats them. Um, and as it happens, Adelchus actually literally spent the rest of his life in Byzantium. He never left the city again. He was just there, still doing nothing, being like, just wait, guys. Any moment, it's all going to come together, and I'm going to come back and take the kingdom. Trust the plan. <laughs> yeah, trust the plan. <laughs> yeah, that that's Adelchus. That's oh, Adelchus. <laughs> so, um... <sighs> The southern bit of Italy um, remained out of his control, however, which was uh, a Lombard province called the Duchy of Benevento. Charlemagne did attempt to take it once uh, a while later on in 787, but it was unsuccessful and he never really tried again since, you know, it was so far away from the sort of power base and wasn't super important to him. So it just wasn't worth the effort to do this campaign to take this little bit of Italy from a Lombard ruler. Yeah, he's got bigger fish to fry. Oh, yeah, no, he does. Uh, he had a lot of other things to worry about because he was a major multitasker when it came to running a kingdom. He was always on the move from front to front, city to city, building this, enacting that, attacking this group, defending that group. It's it's almost dizzying. So for that reason, I'm kind of actually going to be departing from my usual year-by-year -year chronological approach and talking about stuff more by region and topic because he is just so busy it would be mindlessly confusing to try to do it year by year. Because in any given year, he's, like, visited four different battlefronts and done, like, eight different unrelated things. So I'm just going to sort of talk about it by uh, by topic rather than by year. You know, what? you really know you have, your, you have a legend on your hands when you have to leave the year by year chronological approach. Because uh, that's the way it is whenever we cover, like, a president or something. It's like, I can't just go year by year. It's too much. There's just too much going on yep yep so to start out with um there were pretty much constantly things going down in the south of france along the pyrenees the mountains that divide france and spain because you had a lot of competing influences there you had the franks you had the basques who live up in the mountains and are weird um you had <laughs> the gascons who are the the french people in the south 
southeast part of France next to Aquitaine, who are always wanting to rebel. And then, of course, over the mountains, you have the Caliphate in Muslim Spain. You remember the people Charles Martel fought? Right, right. We, we covered them in Charles Martel. Yeah, yeah, so there's like there's a lot going on in that area around the Pyrenees. Um, in 778, Charlemagne received envoys from the Muslim rulers of Zaragoza, Girona, Barcelona, and Huesca, which are all cities in the north of Spain. Uh, their rulers had been cornered in the Iberian Peninsula up there in the top by Abd al-Rahman I, who was the Umayyad Emir of Cordova. So Cordova, you know, the city in southern Spain, is sort of the, the capital of Muslim Spain. And at this point, it had split off from the rest of the caliphate in the Middle East because a new um, dynasty had taken over, but the old dynasty was able to hold on to Spain. And so right now, Spain's in a weird position where it is at war with the rest of the Muslim world. Huh. And so the Muslim rulers of these cities in northern Spain are aligned with the caliphate, not with the Muslim, you know, kingdom in Spain itself. And so it's kind of a weird situation. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so these Muslim rulers offer their homage to Charlemagne Um you know, the king of the Franks, they offer to basically become his subjects in return for military support against the emir of Cordova. And so Charlemagne sees an opportunity to extend Christendom and to, you know, extend his own power while also weakening the position of Islamic Spain, which is good for him since, you know, they do tend to want to invade every now and then, like we saw with Charles Martel. Right, so he and, agrees. And, and I just want to underline the fact that Christendom at this time was an achievable goal. Um, and it was highly desirable because, you know, again, like we covered in Wenceslaus, uh, Christianization was the sort of cement that started to glue these regions together that had been, as we've seen, at war forever. Um, so yeah, I, I can understand that, I guess. Yeah, and because Spain had only been conquered, you know, by the Muslims in the relatively recent past, like, you know, less than a century before, the Christian population of Spain had just been suddenly overwhelmed and subjugated. So you still had, you know, a huge, a huge Christian population that was under Muslim rule. So it's not like, you know, he Charlemagne doesn't have a large Christian population in Spain who would probably rather be under his rule than that of Muslim rulers. Right, okay. Yeah, so Charlemagne agrees to support them, and he leads an army over the Pyrenees uh, to the city of Zaragoza, where he receives the homage of the deposed ruler. Unfortunately, even with the deposed ruler of Zaragoza um, backing him, he is unable to dislodge the Umayyad garrison of the city. So this is a garrison of the Islamic Spanish government down in Cordova. Um, and they're not able to take it, and so Charlemagne decides eventually that this is a waste of time, and begins to march back over to the rest of his kingdom, um, because it's just, it's not worth it getting involved in the sort of fighting between the Muslim factions, he decides. Like, he's always there and sort of, you know, <laughs> nudging the bear and trying to stir shit up just to secure his own borders, but he decides it's not really worth it having full campaigns down here with this sort of civil war going on. I'd like to take this opportunity uh, to mention that you may hear helicopters buzzing over my trailer in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I hope it's not the government, but if it is, you'll have to finish the episode without me. 776 will commence again. <laughs> the helicopter lands, a bunch of 
you know, marines in black, like, start jumping out with machine guns, and I just step out in full armor and a broadsword. <laughs> just like, bring it on, you Muslim bastards. <laughs> so, no, you Charlem Lombard bastards. Well, no, because he was Lombard, so you Frankish bastards. Oh, okay, there you go, Frankish bastards. So, Charlemagne is uh, headed back over the Pyrenees, back to his main kingdom. Um... However, on this return trip, uh, the rear guard of his army is ambushed by the Basques, who are weird and live in the mountains, <laughs> and who had been previously defeated and subjugated, but saw an opportunity and went for it. As Charlemagne's army is going through the mountains, they're like, yeah, I mean, technically we did, you know, surrender and all that, but we could kill a lot of people right now. Um, <laughs> and so they just ambushed the rear guard of his army. And this is called the Battle of Roncevaux Pass. And it's more of a skirmish than a, like, pitched battle because they're just kind of attacking from the hills and stuff. But since they attacked, you know, the unexpecting rear of the traveling army, um, many of Charlemagne's high officials and some trusted advisors are killed in this. Because, you know, this they're not expecting war. They're going through areas that have been, you know, at peace. And they just get, you know, backstabbed by the Basques. Yeah. Who are weird and live in the mountains. <laughs> You know, you know, you know why they're weird because they speak a non-Indo-European language. Uh, that is that would not have been the first thing I would have thought they're weird and live in the mountains because they like make shitty moonshine and pack no, all so their yeah, stuff on one old Model T and drive to Beverly Hills. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's so like it's you remember you know the Indo-European language family like four hundred something languages stretching from India to Iceland. So like, but somehow in the mountains here, there's a non-Indo-European language. It's very weird. They're from space. There's no other explanation. <laughs> that's that's probably it. That's probably it. Anyway, so this um this battle, the Battle of Roncevaux Pass, is immortalized in the oldest surviving significant work of French literature, uh, the Chanson de Roland, the Song of Roland, which is an epic poem of about four thousand lines from the eleventh century. I had to read it in school. It's super famous because it's kind of like the foundational document of French literature because it's written in old French and not in Latin. I had to read it too, and I remember really liking it. Yep, well, it's this is what it was inspired by. What remind me what it was about again? Roland was um Roland was one of Charlemagne's um lieutenants. He was the uh can't remember them like marshal of something or other. Anyway, he's a military commander under Charlemagne, um, who's killed um sort of defending the uh, the the rest of the army as it withdraws after they've been ambushed. Okay, now I remember. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So this disaster, uh, notwithstanding, Charlemagne kept up relations with the Muslim chieftains of northern Spain, who, as we said, were always trying to rebel from the control of the Emir of Cordova, um, because they would they wanted to be aligned with the broader Muslim ca caliphate of which the Cordovan little kingdom was independent. Um, and this is great. Charlemagne even had diplomatic contact with the caliphate itself in Baghdad. Um, he had like, you know, some diplomatic channels. And at one point he was gifted an elephant and a clock by the caliph. <laughs> a clock? Fuck. Yeah, which I imagine both of those things are probably a pretty big deal in 8th century Germany. An elephant yeah, I, and a clock. <laughs> I should think so. Like, both are pretty novel <laughs> to a guy from... Yeah, that's pretty funny. Yes, I just thought that was a, that was a fun detail. I could not figure out what happened to the elephant, though, unfortunately. Damn it! Um, it yeah, went to Afghanistan and was later ridden by uh, Josiah Harlan, who was... I don't think elephants live that long. I don't know. Have you ever met an elephant? 
It I said mean, they I've, live forever, and they, they. I don't know if I've met one. Like I've physically been around one. I don't. I don't know of how meeting goes with elephants. Anyway, that's neither <laughs> here nor there. Um, so, uh, and Charlemagne also managed to keep a foothold on the southern side of the Pyrenees. Um, Basques, notwithstanding, he maintained that border and actually slowly pushed south, eventually controlling Barcelona and sort of a a chunk of northern Spain with access to the Spanish coast. So, like, even after that disaster and Charlemagne deciding it wasn't worth full-scale campaigning, he still, like, kept up the pressure, which is the amazing thing about Charlemagne is that he was always engaged on, like, five different fronts at once and always slowly pushing on all of them. He's, uh, he seems like something like a master strategist. Like, he knows it, what hills not yeah. to die on. Yeah, no, exactly. He seems to know when, when to you know, commit big and when to keep it small. So from Italy and the south coast of France, which he controlled, Charlemagne also pushed into the Mediterranean, which at this time was controlled mostly by Arab pirates. Um, <laughs> by the late... Oh yeah, no, piracy is a huge thing in the ancient world. Um, you know, because if you think about it, like, there's no coast guard, there's no navy, stealing stuff from people trying to travel by sea is really easy. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's true. Hmm. I just yeah. never thought, think about pirates. You know, people say pirates, I think pirates of the Caribbean, but that's because... Yeah, I'm no, wrong. piracy is huge in the ancient world. Um, no, like, really, really big. Um, that was one of the biggest achievements of the Roman Empire, is that they rid the Mediterranean of piracy. Really? Yeah, because hmm. they controlled the whole sea, and um, eventually destroyed all the pirate strongholds. And so that was... That's... Some people... Um, believe that's a big part of why Rome was so rich and prosperous is because they were able to make the Mediterranean safe for travel and commerce in a way it never had been before and so people were able to do so much you know trade and commerce and exchange because they didn't have to worry about pirates for the first time in history I guess the Roman roads extended to the sea as well then hmm yep yep hmm. So by the late 790s, Charlemagne had secured Corsica, Sardinia, and the Balearic Islands, which are off the coast of Spain, um, which were technically still part of the Byzantine Empire, but which had in great part become strongholds of Saracen pirate lords, because at this point, the Byzantines on paper, you know, say they own a lot of stuff that they have no control whatsoever of. They have like one dude with a funny Greek name who lives in like a tower on an island a hundred miles across. They'll be like, yep, we've got this one nailed down, folks. <laughs> it's secure. Yep, it's secure. We've got top men on the job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's the Byzantines at this point. <laughs> so between these islands and the coastal cities of Italy, Charlemagne created and maintained a really strong naval network, uh, which was able to hold the line against Arab piracy and actually keep the Mediterranean or the Western Mediterranean relatively safe for travel for the first time in several centuries. Um, so, like, he's, 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 you know, he's trying to do the... He's really trying to emulate Rome in a lot of ways. Yeah, I noticed that. Yep. So, Charlemagne's longest-running and most constant military front was not against the Arabs, the Caliphate, and the Emir of Cordova, but against his eastern neighbors, in particular, the Saxons. Uh-oh. And the Saxons, after all this time, were actually still pagan. Right. Yeah, which is, you know... At this point, a lot of these Germanic, uh, you know, barbarian kingdoms had been Christian for, you know, three, four hundred years. But the Saxons are still holding out. And they're still pagan. Um, 
And for several generations, or really several centuries, you know, going back to the Merovingian kings, the Saxons had been a constant source of problems for the Franks because they're right across the Rhine and they're always ready to rumble. Mm. Pepin, uh, Charlemagne's dad, had waged multiple campaigns against them and technically subjected them multiple times. But every time, as soon as, you know, the armies were gone, they were pretty quickly back up to their old tricks of raiding and pillaging across the Rhine in the Frankish kingdom. Saxon dogs. (laughs) As you can imagine, this is a very annoying thing, having (laughs) Saxons who, every time you're not looking, come over and, like, burn a house down and steal some sheep. Yeah, like, and this is not good on, for business. And they stand on the rubble and they play the saxophone and just, you know, dark glasses and Kenny G just going at it. Kenny G, super saxon. The, the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> so um, this problem, as I said, this is, this is an issue right from the beginning of Charlemagne's reign because this has been going on for hundreds of years. And soon after he became Soul King in 771, a Saxon raid into what is now the Netherlands included the sacking and the burning of a pretty important church in the city of Deventer. Um, the Saxons don't care. They're pagans. Like, they have cool stuff in the church, so we steal it and we burn it. That's what we do. But when you're Charlemagne, you know, you're a brand new king and you're a king with a strong backing from the Pope, you can't exactly let stuff like that happen. Mm-hmm. And not do anything about it because uh, that doesn't yeah. look good for anyone. You so have, he, you just can't have the Saxons steal in your hot pockets. Like it's just—is there like a, a story to the hot pocket lore? Because I really don't know. No, where it's that just came. a running joke because I think hot pockets are hilarious. <laughs> I mean, if by hilarious you mean delicious, I love hot yeah. pockets. Do you actually like hot pockets? Doesn't everyone? Oh no! Oh no! No! <laughs> No, yeah, I like Hot Pockets. Oh my god, hold on, I need to mark this, because I'm about to call you some things I can't. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about this later. You will have to talk about this. Marking um, for Hot Pockets. Marking for Hot Pockets. So, Charlemagne could not let this happen and not do anything about it. So he invades the Saxon region uh, whence the raid had come. Because the Saxons are super decentralized. It's not like there's a king of the Saxons. There's a lot of different tribes and chieftains and petty kings and stuff. So he figures out which ones were responsible for this raid. He invades that region. He routes the army that comes out to meet him. He destroys some forts. And he knocks down a sacred something. It's called the Ermensul, and it's some sort of pillar. It might have been a tree trunk. It's kind of unclear in the sources what it was, but it's a really important symbol for the Saxons of Saxon paganism. Like, it's their, like, most important shrine tree trunk thing, and so Charlemagne knocks it down. Of course. Because they burnt his they burnt his church, so he's like, fuck you guys. <laughs> fuck your tree. <laughs> yeah, fuck your tree. <laughs> and so he receives the uh, the capitulation of various Saxon nobles, and he calls it a day, since he has to rush down to Italy for those Lombard wars we've already talked about. As I said, he's always on the move. Yeah. And right after he defeats the Lombards at Pavia and gets crowned with the Iron Crown and all that, he has to go right back east, because guess what? The Saxons were at it again crossing the Rhine and attacking his kingdom and stealing stuff and killing people, mostly under a leader named Wittekund, who seems to be the the mover and shaker behind this latest batch of violence. 
So in 775, another invasion by Charlemagne, some more knocking down of forts, and a pretty decisive victory in open battle, after which one important Saxon chieftain called Hesse converts to Christianity and agrees that he's done with the raiding and pillaging stuff and he'll be, you know, a good boy now. <laughs> good for and him. Charlemagne also decides this time to leave some fortresses garrisoned in, Sa in the Saxon region to keep things under guard because he doesn't trust this since, you know, in a, the space of a couple years, he's had to beat them twice already. Acting on the advice of Stanzik before Stanzik was even alive. <laughs> exactly. But the very next year, guess what happens? Rebellion. Yes, a Saxon rebellion, once again stirred up by Wittekund. Seriously, that guy. Which destroyed Erisberg, which was one of the fortresses that Charlemagne had built to keep an eye on the Saxons. So in 776, uh, Charlemagne was back at it again, invading Saxony, once again, putting down a rebellion. He tried to catch Wittekund, but Wittekund actually got away and went to hide out with his in-laws in Denmark. Okay. No joke, he literally went to hide with his wife's family in Denmark. I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> like, he's like, hmm. Be killed by Charlemagne. Christmas with the in-laws. Maybe he flipped a coin, I don't know. But, uh... <laughs> So he ends up with the in-laws in Denmark and Charlemagne was getting really tired of this cycle of every year having to defeat a rebellion. And so he decides he needs to try something a little bit different since he did not want to be back every single year for the rest of his life. After all, he had three other directions to expand his kingdom in. So right. he had a big conference in Saxony in the part that was sort of pacified of both Saxon and Frankish nobles. And the, the conference was to sort of figure out how to integrate the Saxons into his kingdom. And he decided that the only way to get the Saxons to chill the fuck out was to get rid of paganism. Uh -oh. Because it, what with the church burning and stuff and sort of how Germanic paganism worked, it was a pretty big driver of rebellion. And many of the Saxon nobles who'd been pacified were happy to go along with this since they wanted to become more integrated into the kingdom anyway and obviously becoming Christians would put them in a much better political position within Charlemagne's kingdom. But, of course, there were also many Saxons who really liked the old ways and weren't so happy about this. Classic. So, but Charlemagne is, I like, he, Charlemagne's a very, thought, a very thoughtful person in many ways. In order to make it as easy as possible for Christianity to be spread, Charlemagne brings a whole troop of missionary priests over from England, because England at this point is an Anglo-Saxon kingdom. Since they were originally Saxons and they had a shared cultural heritage, Charlemagne thought this would be a big advantage and make it much easier for them to develop good relations with the Sax, with the original Saxons and convert them. Well, that makes sense. Which that's like a that that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Um, and it worked pretty well because Christianity did start to really make some inroads and start to get a lot of Saxon converts. That was the carrot, and there was also a stick. Uh oh. Charlemagne enacted very harsh penalties for anything involving paganism or pillaging. Pretty much both of those meant the death penalty. Wow. So like, don't steal stuff. And don't be caught doing weird pagan things in the moonlight, because either way, <laughs> you get killed. Um, and this is this amazing. So Charlemagne's close religious advisor, the priest, Alcuin of York, yes, York, England, Charlemagne's court was very international, um, 
actually tried to get Charlemagne to ease up on the penalties for paganism because he was like, I don't know, like, I don't think it's, like, exactly the best idea to have, like, you know, death penalty for paganism. But Charlemagne wasn't having it. I was going to say that's kind of strange because that reminds me of when uh, another another English uh, policy especially regard in regards to Ireland was like the banning of everything Irish. It was kind of the same, same deal. You know, I think I mentioned before, I know I mentioned it with James, but like there was a time in Ireland where you could like get punished very harshly for even owning a harp or playing Hurley. Well, I, I have to defend Charlemagne cause this was nothing like that. Like yes. Charlemagne was actually very good about not trying to suppress local cultures it was the pagan religion itself he was trying to get rid of, but he was actually very good about, like, letting, you know, different groups keep their traditional laws modified as was necessary for them to be able to operate within a Christian kingdom. But he was very good about letting groups keep their identity, just like the Kingdom of the Lombards. And I think that's the I think that's an important difference. And also the distinction here is that the Irish weren't uh, constantly causing problems for the English. Yeah, the Irish uh, were not. Yeah, that that is very true. Yeah. And it's funny that, you know, his priest advisor is like, I don't know if it's really necessary to kill them for being pagan. And Charlemagne's like, nope, nope, we're doing it. Yep, kill them. <laughs> yeah, which is funny that, you know, the secular power is more harsh about the religious matter than his priest advisor is. Um, but, and this is what I sort of take from this, is that for Charlemagne, eradicating paganism was just as much, if not more, a political necessity than sort of a religious duty because I think and he he identified probably correctly paganism as kind of the root of his issues with the Saxons and he didn't think they would ever really be peaceful unless they stopped being pagan huh and so yeah. I think for him even though it's you know on the surface religious it was just as important in a secular sense well it might be it might be worth saying that like you know they're still gonna be Saxons, but if you take away, or not take away, but say limit or whatever, um, their ideological motivation for acting the way that they do, it sort of knocks a leg out from under the table, so to speak. Yeah, no, exactly. So this is this is what, what's going down with Charlemagne. Um, however, of course, you know, it's the Saxons, so nothing can be easy. And their next set of rebellions was in 1770... Not, God, I finally did it. I knew <laughs> it was going to happen. Was in 779. Um, after dealing with which, Charlemagne um, started doing sort of a political restructuring of Saxony. Because remember, it's just this decentralized sort of tribes and petty kingdoms, and it's very hard to rule. Um, so after this victory, he divides up Saxony and sort of establishes like regions, you know, districts in it um, for administration purposes. He divides it up in a, by the map. Um, and then in 782, so there's several years here of peace after this, which is rare for the Saxons. He codifies the laws of the Saxons, their traditional laws. He has them written down and codified, you know, modified as was necessary for Christianity and for getting along as part of his kingdom. But he still keeps the core of the Saxons' laws, and he appoints a mix of Saxon and Frankish nobles as rulers over these political districts he's drawn. So he's really, like, he's trying to make sure that the Saxons can stay Saxon. Yeah, I thought I was going to say... But are able to be, you know, controlled and not going off the rails. Yeah, he's playing very fair with them, um, which I kind of admire, to be completely honest. It's, it's, uh... 
You know, it's sort of like, yep, you guys have been a problem for a while, but look, I'm not going to, like, conquer you and turn you into slaves like some psychopaths from the British Empire. Uh, how about this? How about we uh, we modify this as as necessary and we try to work together and, and, look, we'll even put some of your guys in charge. Like, I'm not even going to, like, try to rule from a distance, you know, with an iron hand with only my people, like some psychopaths from the British Empire. Uh, let's work together and maybe integrate our policies and our, our, uh, our you know, civilizations a little bit, you know? Hey, it's pretty yep. fair. Yeah. Um, but that same year, 782, Whitakund came back from the in-laws. <laughs> he Yay. had a bad Christmas. <laughs> and so he rallies together the Saxons who were still not down with Christianization and started attacking not only the Franks, but also other tribes, including other Saxon tribes who had converted to Christianity. So, like, Whitakund has a major axe to grind about all this. Yeah, and this reminds me of the uh, the Red Sticks movement, which we talked about in uh, the uh, Andrew Jackson episode. Jackson episode, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so, since Charlemagne was down further south, uh, fighting against Slavic tribes in what is now the Czech Republic... Wittekund uh, only had to deal with sort of the local Frankish garrison army in Saxony, which he did successfully defeat. Well, of course, that meant that Charlemagne had to return to deal with it again, and by this point, Charlemagne is getting really pissed about the Saxony thing. Uh-oh. Um, so, with Charlemagne coming on his way with the army... Wittekunde goes back to the in-laws in Denmark. <laughs> Having started all this trouble, he then leaves. Ugh. Classic Wittekund. <laughs> and uh, when Charlemagne gets there with the army, the Saxon nobles themselves round up 4,500 rebels and turn them over to Charlemagne. And are like, these are the ones who did it. And so Charlemagne passes a sentence of death and has them all executed. But it's funny that this time, you know, Charlemagne didn't have to fight any wars or, like, the Saxon nobles rounded up the rebels themselves and handed them over. So, like, things are already, you know, changing in Saxony. Yeah, it appears as though the uh, the Saxons are starting to understand that it's better to work with this than to, you know, constantly just harass it and hang out with the in-laws. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so this this event, when he executes these 4,500 people, is called the Bloody Verdict of Verdun. The verdict, because he, you know, he passed the verdict on them. Um, and it's uh, the subject of a metal song. Oh. Which is, yeah. So that's the, it's the metal song from the beginning of the episode, actually. Um, it is kind of weird because a lot of people in history... You know, we're like, yeah, that's pretty understandable. But you occasionally had um, in the 20th century, especially in Nazi Germany, um, it became sort of this obsession with um, the verdict of Verdun as sort of this proto-genocide against the Saxons, which is funny since everyone, all the, Ger you know, Charlemagne himself was German and pretty much everyone involved in killing these people were German but it kind of got latched onto as this proto-genocide against the Saxons and was used as sort of a big theme in art and whatnot um, with German nationalism. That's interesting because I, I, I always find it fascinating how historical events get, can get propagandized, sort of like Alexander Nevsky. Like, you know, that was, a, that was a fan favorite, you might say, in the Soviet Union, and it was a complete, not a complete, but a very um, biased... Uh, presentation of what actually happened with Alexander Nevsky, I mean, because oh, it was yeah. propaganda. It was picked up and used for that purpose later on. Um, I always find that fascinating just because I'm a media guy, and it's interesting to hear about this one. Um, 
because, like, it it makes sense what Charlemagne's decision was, but it, it's very clear that this could easily be like, well, actually, those 4,500 rebels, they had the true spirit of Saxony, and, and you know, I, I get it. Like, I, I get it. I get it. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So, um, things were pretty tense at this point after after these executions, and Charlemagne actually ended up having to stay over the next two years in Saxony, dealing with various uprisings, most of which were engineered by Wittekund, who kept coming back from the in-laws to stir up trouble and then leaving after he stirred it up. I suspect snowballs behind this. <laughs> <laughs> so, finally, in 785, after being defeated, Wittekund himself decided to throw in the towel, convert to Christianity, and pledge loyalty to Charlemagne. Oh. Yeah. And so, after this, although there were still some sporadic uprisings, um, this pretty much marked the turning point for the Saxon Wars. It, there wasn't really anything major. Once Wittekund was like, you know what? Whatever. After that, <laughs> it was it was pretty much over. Um, there was an uprising among one Saxon tribe a bit later, um, in 796, but it was quickly crushed mostly by the neighboring Christian Saxons and Christian Slavs without Charlemagne really having to do anything. So Hmm. yeah, it's, it's pretty much settled in Saxony. Um, with the prospects looking good, Charlemagne also started scaling back the harsh laws he'd enacted and allowing for even more use of local Saxon laws and customs. Um, he also then started like founding towns and installing bishops and, you know, really like sort of settling Saxony since it was clear at this point that the, the whole rebellion thing was more or less over in total. He'd spent over 30 years in campaigns against the Saxons. Damn. That's a long time to deal with one group or one group of groups. I don't know. Yeah. But of course, you know, as we said, he's back and forth all the time. This was the single longest front um, but he's, you know, c- constantly traveling back and forth between different places. It's so interesting to see, the... a, you know, that put a nice little bow on that one for him. Yeah, yeah, he did. He really did. Um, and all the while, you know, he's managing multiple other fronts. Um, in addition to the ones we've talked about, you know, in France and Spain and the islands, he also had extended campaigns in Central Europe against Slavic tribes. Uh, who he eventually conquered and Christianized. So, in addition to all these other wars, uh, Charlemagne fought off an invasion by an Asiatic nomadic group who were called the Avars, and who were probably related to the Huns. So, you know, they're into horses and weird and nomadic and scary. Um, they're that kind of that kind of invasion. But he successfully fends them off and then actually goes on the offensive against them and defeats them repeatedly until they actually offered to capitulate convert to Christianity, and settle down in what is now Hungary and become his subjects. Man. He's just yeah, he's like, such a legend. He just keeps going. Yeah, no, he's he is on a roll. So in 799, uh, Charlemagne is just chilling at his capital in Aachen in western Germany when he gets word that a rival faction within the city of Rome had brutally attacked the Pope, who's Leo III at this point, and tried to put his eyes out and cut out his tongue. Yeah, but the Pope had fortunately escaped mostly intact and had taken refuge with one of Charlemagne's vassals, the Duke of Spoleto in Italy. The attackers were partisans of the previous Pope, 
who probably wanted to remove Leo from office. It's unclear exactly what the motivations were. You know how you know how it is with medieval Italians. Like there's always something going on, and so there's Alrighty. some sort of partisan issue, and he gets attacked. And so the reason that they attempted to take out his tongue was because if they'd succeeded in doing that, he would have had to relinquish being pope because without his tongue, you can't talk, and if you can't talk, you can't say mass. Well, I mean that would do it. <laughs> So no, it's um there are there are a number of rules like that. For example, if you're missing your thumb or index finger, you have to get special permission to be ordained a priest because you need those fingers for holding the you know the hosts during consecration. So there wow, are a number of physical requirements. Yeah, so there are a number of physical requirements that you have to have to be able to be a priest. And so they tried to cut out his tongue so that he would have to resign as pope, but he escaped. So Charlemagne doesn't really know what to make of all this, but he invites the Pope up north to his kingdom, sent more centrally, to take it easy and recover while he tried to figure out how to resolve this situation and keep everybody happy. And the Pope, the Pope went along with this. He goes up north and takes it easy, recovers from all this. But having failed to steal his tongue, his enemies accused him of adultery and demanded that he be removed from office. I guess oh. they probably had someone else they wanted to put in place instead. Yeah, when all else fails, you can't cut out the tongue, just accuse them of adultery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a big part of this may have been that Leo was from a peasant family, and the pre and these people and the previous pope were from Italian no noble families, so they may have been upset that there was a peasant as the pope instead of one of them. That would make sense. So that's probably what's going on here. So... They've, you know, they make this complaint that he's committed adultery and needs to be removed. So Charlemagne sends the Pope back to Rome with guards and announces that he himself would go down to Rome and sort everything out himself. Okay. And the next year he does just that. He arrives in Rome just before Christmas in the year 800. See, I told you there was going to be a Christmas connection here. Woohoo! Jingle bells! <laughs> And he holds a council with both sides, the Pope and the people accusing the Pope. And predictably, Charlemagne decides that it is all BS what they're doing, and he sends the opposing faction into exile and thus secures the position of Pope Leo, who fortunately still has his eyes and his tongue. <laughs> okay, good. Yep. And so that's right before Christmas. Um, and two days later, on Christmas Day, a very important thing happens. The birth of Jesus. No. Um, so Charlemagne, Charlemagne shows up to St. Peter's in Rome for Mass. You know, Christmas, Charlemagne goes to Mass. And he gets a little surprise. He's just walking in, you know, looking for a seat like you do. Uh, when he's suddenly ushered right up to the front sanctuary where the Pope is waiting for him. And boom, Pope Leo III crowns Charlemagne as Imperator Romanorum, Emperor of the Romans. What? <laughs> Whoa! This, yeah, this is, in the words of Joe Biden, a big fucking deal. Because <laughs> you were ever since the late 5th century, like we talked about in the Martell episode, there had been no Western Roman Emperor. After the last one was deposed, there just hadn't been an Emperor, and the whole Roman Empire on paper, was claimed by the Byzantine emperor in Constantinople, even though they rarely exercised any real power in the West. 
But with Byzantine power declining and his conflicts with them increasing, you know, see the whole situation with the Exarchate, Pope Leo had chosen to take a very decisive action by crowning a new Western Emperor after literal centuries. By doing this, he was sort of asserting the independence of the Western Roman Empire, or the former Western Roman Empire, from the, uh, you know, the Byzantine administration, and also asserting his independence as the, as the Pope of Rome from imperial control by the Byzantines, since now he had made an emperor instead of, you know, an emperor appointing him as Pope, he had appointed an emperor. So this was a big, like, power move on the part of Pope Leo to show the East that he didn't need them. Damn. Like, when you understand the context of all this, you realize the the magnitude of such an event. It's almost... I mean, how do, it's like the end of Return of the King when Aragorn's made king. It's like, yeah, pretty much that size of uh, of an event, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. So contemporary records indicate that, like I implied in my story, Charlemagne was not told that this was going to happen, but literally got blindsided at mass on Christmas by the Pope, making him Roman Emperor. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, some people think that, the, you know, he actually knew this was going to happen. It was all kind of a show. But the contemporary sources pretty strongly indicate that he did not know this was going to happen and was just as surprised as anybody else. And so this revived Western Imperial office is what later becomes known as the Holy Roman Empire, which survives as a political institution until it is finally abolished by Napoleon in the 19th century. So this literally lasts a thousand years, what Jeez. happens on this day. Man, yeah. wow. It, yeah, no. That's why and we, so need, we need to get to Napoleon at some point, because uh, I want to hear about all the shit he did. That's going to have to be a multi-parter, I think. That will be a multi-parter, uh, and I can't wait for it, but... Carry on. Yep. So predictably, the Byzantines are really upset about this, since, of course, they claimed the sole emperorship was held by the East at that time in the person of their empress, Irene. And within a few years, they were at war with Charlemagne's Western Roman Empire, even though they didn't really have the resources to have a full-scale war. So it was mostly just kind of coastal raiding of Italy. And eventually, peace was reached uh, in 812, when the Byzantine emperor at that point, his name Michael, recognized Charlemagne as an emperor and agreed to knock it off. Which is probably why, since obviously the Byzantines have a lot of other issues and don't exactly need to be at war with the West. Right, yeah. Yeah. So in January of 814, so this is 14 years after his coronation, uh, Charlemagne fell ill with a lung infection and was bedridden. Uh, Charlemagne's devoted servant, Einhard, who would later write a, bi a whole biography of the emperor and who, you know, personally knew him and was his servant, says that Charlemagne fell into a deep depression because he realized that his life was coming to an end and he had so many plans he had not yet accomplished. And so, you know, we're talking about somebody who has built a massive empire and expanded his kingdom in all four directions, pretty much, has become the emperor, has essentially changed Europe permanently, and he's depressed because he has so many things he still wanted to do. Man, that's... Yeah. So, and this is, a, this is from Einhard's account. Um, so this, you know, guy was there as a witness. He died January 28th, the seventh day from the time that he took to his bed, 
at 9 o'clock in the morning, after partaking of Holy Communion in the 72nd year of his life and the 47th of his reign. <sighs> he was, uh, Charlemagne was buried that same day in the Cathedral of Aachen, which you can still visit. You can, you know, it's obviously been expanded and added to, but the core of the Cathedral in Aachen is still the one that Charlemagne built. Um, I've been there, it's really awesome. Um, Charlemagne's empire was inherited by his son and co-emperor, Louis, um, who had, um, Charlemagne had crowned as co-emperor because he, you know, didn't want there to be any question about succession. So while he was still alive, he crowned him as co-emperor. And, uh, so Louis is his only son who survived, a legitimate son who survives into adulthood. So fortunately, Louis inherits the whole empire. But, unfortunately, Salic law was still practiced, and Louis's empire that he inherited from Charlemagne ends up falling into multiple pieces, and there's a civil war between his sons, and it's really sad. But the office of Western Emperor endured, although the form and nature changed over the centuries. Um, you know, for a while, it's mostly centered on the Lombard Kingdom in Italy. Later on, it becomes centered in Germany. Later on, it becomes centered in Austria. But there is political continuity there. And I know we've kind of gotten to Charlemagne's death really quickly. But, um, you know, I just wanted to sort of wrap up because we've already talked about so many of these military campaigns. And he's constantly doing that right up to the end of his life. He's engaged in these military campaigns, pushing out in all sorts of directions. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. no, I, I'm paying attention. I was just thinking about, you know, he lived to be 72. That's rare back then. And to rule for, for that long. And, you know, after he dies to have the, uh, to have the whole thing just kind of like in a fresh turmoil, um, because of these, this Salic law. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. <laughs> yeah, it's a real bummer. So, before we finish, I want to go back and talk about some of the amazing things that Charlemagne was doing at the same time as he was expanding and strengthening this remarkable empire, because he was so busy. So first of all, Charlemagne was a huge promoter of education and literacy no, all over Europe. Not surprised. <laughs> yeah, he pretty much started what is now known as the Carolingian Renaissance. Um, he brought scholars from all over Europe to his kingdom and was always establishing schools. Art, architecture, music, jurisprudence, literature, pretty much all subjects of learning were heavily promoted by Charlemagne. He revolutionized a lot of aspects of government. He simplified and standardized monetary systems and enacted standard practices of accounting, which lasted for centuries. Like he was so innovative in many, many ways. Tons of ancient texts only survive in the Carolingian copies made in Charlemagne's schools and monasteries. Like a, almost all, um, not a, you know, a huge portion of stuff from the ancient world, you know, stuff like Cicero and Caesar and whatnot, we only have because they were copied in these schools. Jeez. So it's a really, it's a really big deal. That's um, huge. Yeah, we have existing extant about 7,000 books from these schools. It's estimated that during the Carolingian Renaissance, about 100,000 manuscripts were produced, of which we, st we have about 7,000. I think that's, Which is ama that's amazing. When you think about how much time it takes to hand write 
a manuscript and you know make a manuscript out of vellum is there's a whole lengthy process how you turn a cow into a book um it's <laughs> yeah it's a lot it's a lot. Um, so Charlemagne loved books. He loved books and learning. And he often had someone read to him during meals um, because he was so busy um, that, you know, meals were one of the only free time he had. And so he would have someone read him a book during meals. Well, it's, he, like, um, it's sort of like uh, he's he's a he's a busy guy. And what do busy guys do? Well, they listen to their podcasts while they're traveling, they're eating or they're. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. I'm sure I'm sure Charlemagne was was the type of uh type of like high high level guy who had him read it at 1.5 speed or something <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely so um he also and this was another important thing he ensured an extremely high level of latin literacy among courtiers and clergy because in the centuries after the decline of the western empire the standards of literacy had gone down drastically so even people who were supposed to be like literate and educated had like terrible, terrible literacy in Latin, um, even though that's allegedly the language they could read and write. And so he ensured a very high level of education literacy so that, that there would be a uniform standard for communication across the many regions of his empire that had all these different languages. Because if everybody speaks kind of a, a shitty Latin that's, if, you know, kind of related to their own vernacular language, then it kind of defeats the purpose of having one language that everybody, you know, everybody can write in in Latin if it's different in every place. So he ensures that there's this high level of education among clergy and courtiers so that you can have that universal communication across the kingdom. Right. Well, I want to interject here something about uh, me being a dumbass uh, a while back is like before before I uh, took Latin or even read anything in Latin or even thought Latin was useful. I used to think it was like, oh, it's a dead language, and I have no idea why anybody would want to learn Latin. Um, and it's like, well, why the hell did Thomas Aquinas write all his shit and, you know, what, what is it? it? Was it Latin, or am I thinking of somebody else? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, it's yeah. all Latin. He wrote it all in Latin. I read a bunch of it. Um, and he, uh, like, I was like, why does this have to be in Latin? Why can't this be in English? Um, and, you know, why didn't he write it in his native tongue? And why didn't... And then it just it just clicks. You're like, oh, because they were trying to create a network between many different cultures that spoke different languages. And to have a unified language for uh, text meant you could transport them or copy them and send them elsewhere. Uh, and you didn't have to worry about, like, making sure that it was a translation for that. It's like, you know, it's just like learn Latin. Yeah, no, it, it really facilitates communication. Yeah, yeah. So at the same time as he did this, however, he also encouraged these people who now knew Latin well uh, to translate Latin works and religious texts into all their different vernacular languages for greater accessibility in society. So like he he had both sides of it, like he wanted the, you know, the educated people to have perfect Latin so there was no confusion, but he wanted them to also translate things from Latin into their individual local languages so they could be shared. Every based, every cover base, or, oh my god, every base covered, I was trying to say, fuck, <laughs> I was, every base covered, this man is a stable genius. <laughs> yeah, yep, and this is, this is where it gets crazy. So despite all this, and despite years of effort, Charlemagne himself remained unable to read or write through his life. Holy shit. He kept a wax tablet under his pillow, and every night before bed he would practice drawing the letters, but was never able to become literate. And it's now thought that he himself may actually have been dyslexic. 
Yeah, but he was he was he was literally embarrassed by it, and so he would keep it under his pillow. And when no one else was around, he would try to practice drawing the letters. Oh, that's that's really endearing. <laughs> I know, is it like this is like the most powerful man in the world at this point? He's conquered nations and done all this, and he's just trying to learn how to write. <laughs> like, it's actually really sad. Yeah, it's just he quietly pulls out the wax tablet and he's like, "You can do this, buddy." A. It's just a V with a stick through it. You got it. Oh. I know. It's it's amazing. And it makes it even more impressive how dedicated he was to spreading literacy and education. Right. You know, it's like he goes to bed, practices his letters, and the next morning he wakes up and universalizes Latin and tries to get every yeah. work in the vernacular. And it's like, you know, creates a hundred thousand copies or, or original uh, manuscripts and books and just like, and then he goes and tries to draw an A. <laughs> no, it's amazing. It's oh. amazing. Yeah, is is Charlemagne is often referred to as the grandfather of Europe because so much of the Middle Ages is built on the foundation Charlemagne created in terms of the education, the political structures, everything. Um, many later states of Europe draw directly or indirectly on the legacy of Charlemagne for legitimacy. And in fact, in many European languages, the very word for king is derived from his name, Karl. So in Polish, Kral, um, Ukrainian, Koral, Czech, Kral, um, and various others, including Russian, Koral, the word for king literally is from his name, just like how the word for Caesar which is a name, you know, becomes the word for emperor, like Kaiser in German and Tsar in Russian. The word for king comes from Charlemagne. That's insane and amazing. Isn't that awesome? Man. So I want to end here with the physical description of Charlemagne, which was written by his servant Einhard, who was with him, with him through his life. So here goes. He was heavily built, sturdy, and of considerable stature, although not exceptionally so, since his height was seven times the length of his own foot. He had a round head, large and lively eyes, a slightly larger nose than usual, white but still attractive hair, a bright and cheerful expression, a short and fat neck, and he enjoyed good health except for the fevers that affected him in the last few years of his life. Towards the end, he dragged one leg. Even then, he stubbornly did what he wanted and refused to listen to doctors. Indeed, he detested them because they wanted to persuade him to stop eating roast meat, as was his wont. Holy shit, I didn't think I could like him any better, but... <laughs> so there you have it. Charlemagne, King of the Franks, Emperor of the Romans, Founder of the Holy Roman Empire, a man who really wanted a good steak. <laughs> I love it. And so, yeah. And now I want to circle back and... Give the Christopher Lee thing. So you know Christopher Lee, the actor, Saruman, Count Dooku, mm -hmm. among others. So he's actually, he was actually a, de a descendant of Charlemagne. Of course. Because his, um, his mother was from an Italian noble family. And yeah, so he's a descendant of Charlemagne. And when he, towards the end of his life, um, like around the time he was almost 90, he did a metal album as a collaboration with an Italian symphonic metal band. They did a metal album about the life of Charlemagne. That's not even surprising. Of course. <laughs> and he was the oldest vocalist ever to feature on a metal album. And then he issued, he did another one. He did a, me a heavy metal Christmas album. 
And this is like shortly before the last couple years of his life before he died. When he's literally 91, he's releasing metal albums. And yeah, like I think Charlemagne would have been happy with his his descendant Christopher Lee doing that because that's 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 a kind of amazing thing to do. And this is my my personal note is that several years before Christopher Lee died, I wrote to him and told him how awesome he was and included a printout of the album art for the Charlemagne album and asked him to sign it. And it was years. I never heard back. You know, I figured whatever. And, you know, he was dead. And like a year after he died, I got a, I got a little, a little parcel from England. And it was from like his estate manager who says when they were clearing out one of Christopher Lee's desks, they found the, um, the envelope for me and it had been opened and Christopher Lee had actually signed my album art. And so they sent it to me. So it was literally like four years after I wrote it, I wrote the letter. I got back the album art for the Christopher Lee Charlemagne album signed by Christopher Lee. I think you did this whole episode just so you could tell that story. (laughs) Well, maybe I did. That's badass though. I mean, (laughs) that's a good reason as any, I guess. Um, Oh man, that's a, that's that. I have no words. That was probably, that's probably been one of my favorite stories we've had so far. I just like hearing about people who want to do the right thing and, but also aren't afraid to do stuff that might be controversial in the, you know, the, the end goal of achieving some kind of greater good. You know, I just love stories like that. Um, yeah, no. And, and I, I, I really wanted to do Charlemagne because I think it's a name almost everyone has heard. Mm-hmm. Like it's you know it's kind of like like Caesar. People have heard of Julius Caesar. They might not know anything about him, but almost everyone has heard the name somewhere. And I think Charlemagne's kind of like that. That almost everyone has heard the name, but most people know nothing about him. And so I thought it'd be a really good episode because especially because it has the Christmas connection because he was crowned emperor on Christmas. Yep, and I think that's uh that's a an excellent way to celebrate the Christmas season. Even if you don't celebrate Christmas, just remember it's also Charlemagne's coronation day. And he was just a guy who liked a good steak. Just a guy who liked a good steak and wanted to learn to write letters. Well, I think that's a a good place to, uh, to close it. And so, yeah, just hope everyone has a a wonderful Christmas season. Uh, And uh, yeah, should we wrap it up? I think we should, and we should, uh, we should take this to the surface so I can close everyone out with a very special inclusion. So, George, what are you going to do for Christmas? It is Christmas Eve. What are you going to do for Christmas Eve? How about that? Well, um, as soon as we wrap it up here, I'm going to drive to the airport to pick up some family members who are flying in. Nice. And then uh, some other family members are driving in and just going to have a, yeah, have kind of a a family Christmas. It'll be nice. Nice. That's wonderful. Hmm. What about you? Uh, I'm basically going to go hang with my family. Uh, We've rented a cabin. Uh, It's going to be hopefully cool. We'll see. It's on a lake, so I don't see how it couldn't be cool. Uh, you know, it's that lake effect, you know, ha, ha, ha. Uh, and with that, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you probably hate Charlemagne too, which makes you a bad person. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP or send us a little Christmas present to show your appreciation for, uh, the work we do year round here at We Talk About Dead People. 
Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration, and you can view more of his wonderfully whimsical and probably, at this time of year, Christmassy work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll say Merry Christmas, Happy Coronation Day, and close out and let the sounds of Christopher Lee's heavy metal Christmas play you out. Come